This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to The Law Report. Damien Carrick with you. The Victorian government is set to consider fully decriminalising sex work this year. Today, guest producer Carly Godden traces how over the years the law in Victoria has regulated the commercial sex and adult industries. And clearly, listeners, you need to be aware that there are sexual references in this program. If we can have this industry as transparent as possible, if people in this industry can legally access all avenues of protection like any other worker, that will be far more positive for the industry. It's more of like a saviour complex of you couldn't possibly enjoy what you're doing for work because I don't think that I could ever do it. The business of sex is almost everywhere. There are brothels, strip clubs, massage parlours and adult shops across our suburbs. And of course, there are now also a huge range of online services beaming straight into our homes. Do lawmakers always get the balance right? How do we best protect the rights, health and safety of those who work in this industry? And how do we balance their rights against the rights of others, including neighbours and families? But these debates are age old. Victorians have raised similar questions before, way back at a time when sex work was still not illegal. I'm standing in a city block in Lonsdale Street in Melbourne, CBD, with historian Dr Barbara Minchinton. Now surrounded by high-rises, this area was once known as Little Lon. In the beginning in Melbourne, sex workers were living spread all over the town, like they could set up house anywhere. And that carried on really until the 1860s, 1870s. And gradually what happened through the century was that the police moved the sex workers into Little Lon because that's an area that was furthest away from the business area, furthest away from where the respectable people were living, so they got the least complaints. So these women were really hounded on on a range of levels, even though what they were doing was not illegal. In 1988, the Little Lon City Block became one of the country's biggest archaeological dig sites and was dug up again in 2003 and 2004. A treasure trove of objects was collected, particularly from, of all places, cesspits, which used to be people's loos. When these cesspits were phased out by the council, the people of Little Lon filled them to the brim with their rubbish. Of course, what this means for us is that we have this very tightly dated deposit of material from 1871 and 1872, and often we know the exact two weeks that people were filling them with rubbish. Dr Sarah Hayes, sociologist at Deakin University. So it becomes like, you know, the archaeologist's dream time capsule, basically. So that's why archaeologists get so excited about cesspits. <laughs> for Sarah and Barbara, artefacts unearthed in these digs show that 19th century sex workers could live in relative comfort. Many of the high-class establishments were, in fact, owned by former sex workers turned madams. A big part of life in the brothels of Little Lon was also about entertainment. It wasn't just about providing sex and nothing else. It was actually around food and drink and the really, the, I think probably one of the key things where you can tell that one of the sites in this area was a brothel site is there's a much higher number of alcohol bottles. For some single mothers, sex work was a better alternative to long, gruelling hours 
as a domestic servant or in a shop or factory. The police basically believed that women only did this for three or four years and then they died diseased in the streets. My research indicates that that is certainly true of a few women, but by no means was it a general situation at all that many of the women treated it as a, a temporary thing that they did when they needed a bit of extra money. They would move into sex work and move out of it on an irregular basis. So, of course, it's like now, you know, you see a bit of gang warfare and you think, oh, it's happening everywhere and it's happening to everybody. Well, no, it's in the newspapers because it's actually rare. And that's certainly the same story with the sex workers, that these things did happen and there were fairly rough dives and there were opium dens, but they were by no means the general story of most people's lives. But it's not just commercial sex work in the adult-only industry that has reportedly grappled with prejudice. So I'm making her chaps. So chaps are a traditional cowboy get-up that you would wear over jeans to stop your legs getting stained by the horse sweat so that you can put them over clothing, just jocks or nothing underneath um, because they have no crotch in them. I'm here at Eagle Leather, an adult-only retailer particularly known for its leather bondage and fetish wear, most of which is handcrafted right here by Hannah. Just putting a shield behind the zip so you don't catch the skin. As you zip them on. Eagle Leather set up shop over 25 years ago. Co-owner BJ has been in the trade for almost as long. I wanted to work in an adult shop and I knew I knew that. I was very fascinated by sexuality in general and I wanted to make it a big part of my life and a, and a career. Because, I mean, you spend most of your life in your job and, and I think it's the, one of the most important things what my father taught me as well is to find something you enjoy doing, um, make money out of it, you know? But I, didn't, I don't think he thought it was going to be sex or anything. In its early days, Eagle Leather formed part of a local hub of thriving adult-only businesses. But today, the neighbourhood is more known for being a popular night spot. This has changed so much, this area. This has absolutely changed. I can remember, this is only, only going back 15 years ago, on my lunch break, I'd have to go to the service station for lunch and get a stale kind of sandwich from there. <laughs> from their little fridge there. And now there's just so many cafes everywhere. LGBT plus venues are also part of this area's history. Some even date back to around 1980, when Parliament finally decriminalised gay sex. The bondage and fetish scene, which mainly attracted gay men at that time, remained underground for a lot longer. Although in recent years, things have changed. I've joked before in saying that from a retailer's perspective, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey was the greatest book ever written <laughs> because it's meant a lot more sales. During the pandemic lockdowns in 2020, online sales of sex toys rocketed in Australia, some say by up to 83% from the previous year. But insiders complain that despite attracting legions of customers, adult-only businesses continue to be treated as shady, backdoor operations. All forms of adult business, whether you're an adult retailer or a brothel, for example, you're subject to local council planning. Uh, and what tends to happen is if you're a restricted premises and you, you've been deemed as an adult-only premises, you'll be shifted to an industrial area. And that's why you see this kind of red light 
district type phenomenon happening where you've got kind of these licensed bars along with adult retailers, along with strip clubs, along with brothels. So that, that's a result of local planning laws. Jared Bartle is Policy and Campaigns Advisor for the Eros Association. So we've got adult retailers, adult wholesalers, brothels, escort agencies, porn producers, adult entertainment venues or strip clubs as they're commonly known, as well as individual sex workers. Eros was founded in 1992. Its founders helped defeat a proposal to ban the sale of X-rated films in Australia. So the body was set up basically to deal with those sorts of issues. I think most people would know the uh, president of the Eros Association, as she was for a long period of time, Fiona Patton, who's now a politician. When it comes to banking, we still have issues of the major banks, the big four banks, refusing to supply things like merchant facilities, so like FPOS facilities, to brothels or adult retailers. We constantly receive complaints that facilities have been withdrawn from businesses, and it extends quite broadly. We've also heard stories from staff members who work at an adult retail store being denied personal loans. What reasons are the banks giving for denying these services? It used to be when adult-only businesses were being discriminated against that that was clearly because of some sort of moral judgement and they used to be quite explicit when they would say that, you know, well, that's a sleazy industry, we want nothing to do with it. That seems to have changed over time. Now you tend to hear money laundering. So we're not going to supply basic banking services to the industry because we view them as high risk of money laundering. Generally, the reason classically that the sex industry is being viewed as high risk of money laundering is because it's cash-based. But the reason it's cash-based is because the banks won't supply them with FBOS facilities. So there's a bit of a circular reasoning with how we see industry discrimination happen at the moment. But in some parts of Australia, the commercial sex side of the adults-only industry is being radically transformed. Until November 2019, New South Wales was the only jurisdiction to have fully decriminalised sex work. are in and we have five no's and 16 eyes. The bill means brothels, soliciting and home-based sex work are no longer illegal. It's passing through the NT Parliament was the result of over a decade of campaigning from sex workers who had to overcome what they say is the stigmatisation of their industry. Only weeks before this landmark legislation, similar laws proposed in South Australia were defeated. The Victorian government has yet to respond to its own inquiry into decriminalisation, headed up by parliamentarian Fiona Patton. She's the leader of the Reason Party, which until 2017 was known as the Sex Party. The legislation in Victoria is not fit for purpose, and we understood that. We understood that a large number of people working in the industry are working outside the legislation. Stigma and discrimination uh, against sex workers and against even business operators was prevalent and ubiquitous, and it it really, it affected how people could access health services, whether people could get a lease on a property. It affected employment opportunities, education opportunities, even in some cases, travel opportunities. So what we're doing now doesn't work and we do somewhat urgently need to fix that. And how confident are you of seeing legislative change in 2021? I'm very optimistic that Victoria will decriminalise sex work. You know, I wasn't asked to consider 
whether we should decriminalise sex work in Victoria. I was asked by the government how they should decriminalise sex work in Victoria. One of the many groups that participated in the review was independent, not-for-profit organisation, Sex Work Law Reform Victoria. The reality of street work is that there's far, far less of it than in the popular imagination. Of course, it is so much the visible and stereotypical view of sex work. Cheryl Overs has campaigned on this issue since the 1970s and has continued to advise on public health and sex worker programs. The digital technologies mean that street sex workers declined, people can hook up with smartphones and so on. Victoria's then groundbreaking reforms in the late 1980s introduced the state's current system of licensed brothels. There is a myth that by creating a two-tier industry, legalisation creates legal brothels in which everything's fine and they're well regulated and then an unregulated layer in which there are various abuses and crime or whatever. That's not the case at all. There are problems in both sectors. And what sorts of problems are we talking about? Well, the first thing to say about licensed brothels is that it's arbitrary. Some of them are great. Some people are really happy in their workplace. Their bosses are good. Everything's fine. So the bad ones, women are forced to work unacceptable hours. They're dirty. They allow in clients who they know to be violent or have STDs and bullying and holding back money and unfair dismissal. People are doing the best they can sometimes. Um, but there's nobody keeping them in check. Sex worker Lexi, not a real name, currently works in a Melbourne licensed brothel. I think that brothels or any business owner will most likely only do the bare minimum of what they have to do. So the bar, I think, overall needs to be lifted. I think based on what other places are doing, my workplace is actually pretty okay, but the bar needs to be lifted. Looking beyond licensed brothels, non-compliance by self-employed sex workers is widespread. Here's Fiona Patton. The current legislation means that they basically can't work from home. Uh, They have to work in outcalls or they have to go and rent specific premises to conduct their work. And none of these things are really conducive to independent sex work. So what we find is that sex workers work without following those regulations, which means they're nervous when something happens and when they might want to call the police or call some other government agency for assistance. When we look at micro-businesses, whether it's an accounting, accounting firm or a small bookkeeping operator or a small gardening business, uh, we allow them to operate as long as it doesn't affect the amenity of the area. And I would see that the same rules should apply to all businesses, including sex worker businesses. Currently, there's planning law restrictions for licensed brothels. So, for example, you can't run a brothel right next door to a school. How do we deal with the concerns that neighbours and local communities might have about allowing independent sex work? We don't need to somehow treat this industry as it's as that it somehow puts out toxic waste or it's somehow dangerous. It's not. It's a very discreet business. People don't make big songs and dances about going into a, a brothel or, or going to see a sex worker. I would suggest that many people don't know that they may be living next door to a sex worker. They don't know 
that there may be even an illegal brothel operating in their street. But the regulations that currently regulate our brothels are completely onerous, are completely over the top, are completely unnecessary, and they really were about controlling this industry, not regulating it. And I think now as we move to decriminalisation, as we recognise that this industry has a place in our society and sex workers should be treated equally in our society, then I expect that our regulations, including our planning regulations, fully reflect that. If it's better for sex workers to work in a brothel, they're going to do it because it's safer, it's guaranteed work. Melbourne sex worker, Lexi. You don't have to vet your own clients. It's cash in hand. You make your own hours. You're not exposing yourself to any kind of dangers in that people knowing where you live. So I think that the domino effect of decriminalisation and making brothels safer places to work and more regulated places to work will have the flow-on effect of there will be less people conducting business out of their own homes. I think there'll always be private escorts. I think the majority of it, though, happens in hotels. It's not happening in, you know, the suburbs. As Cheryl Obers from Sex Work Law Reform Victoria sees it, if all sex work was decriminalised, all sex workers would be better off. Those in the informal sector could emerge from the legal shadows and those in the formal brothel sector would now have other options and that would give them the bargaining power to uphold their workplace rights. We have a wonderful system that makes workplaces safe, that protects citizens from discrimination, that stops violence, that gives people the workers' rights like sick leave and maternity leave, decent physical working conditions. So decriminalising sex work in Victoria means that the barriers to using those regulations will be gone. So there's a very exciting opportunity here to really get it right. And so your organisation spoke to a lot of sex workers. What's the biggest change that they say that they want to see? The main demand that sex workers have of government is for protection of privacy. And it's so important that sex workers simply won't comply with demands that they give their identification either to apply for business licences or for exemptions to run brothels. All of these procedures for registering sex workers' names are rejected. It's got to be another solution that is specifically made for sex workers to feel safe. Having a database of people's real names, addresses, tax file numbers, whatever, I think is incredibly dangerous. There's got to be a discussion around an alternative to that. You're listening to The Law Report with me, reporter Carly Godden. For this episode, we're looking at the adults-only industry, including the business of selling sex, be it from licensed brothels, massage parlours or private homes. We've heard about the push for full decriminalisation, but some think that there are better legal options to help protect individuals from harm. Dr Megan Tyler from RMIT University. The Nordic model or the equality model gets a bit of a bad rap in Australia. I think we don't understand how widespread it is now. So you've got it in places like Sweden, Norway, France, Israel, Canada and Ireland. And we can't really move forward, I think, in our discussions of systems of prostitution until we recognise that that the vast majority of times this is men purchasing sexual access to women and they tend to be some of the most marginalised women anywhere in the world. So women suffering from poverty, women who are homeless, women who are drug addicted, Indigenous women, racially marginalised women, migrant women and so on. The Nordic model criminalises the purchase of sexual services 
while completely decriminalising the selling of sexual services. So people in prostitution suffer no legal sanction, but you have the state actively discouraging, through legal sanction, the purchasing of sexual access to others. And one of the key differences between the Nordic model or the equality model and all the others is the great funding of exit programs that they need to be absolutely key to this. So you're recognising that disadvantage and that inequality and the state is giving funding and resourcing to people who want to leave prostitution. And we know from international studies the vast majority of people who are generally women in prostitution want to leave. I think what we miss here, particularly in Australia, is a conversation around sex trade survivors who are whistleblowers on the sex industry who are speaking about the harm that they experienced and the fact that they find it so difficult to get a voice in the media here, for example, or in formal inquiries. It's really tone deaf to be advocating for police intervention at that level right now. Cheryl Overs from Sex Work Law Reform Victoria. I mean, in Sweden, it's created a dreadful, dangerous sex industry that Swedish sex workers have written about extensively. So one of the problems is by conflating consenting sex work with trafficking and sexual abuse actually takes the focus away from genuine trafficking and sexual abuse. It makes a mockery of the fact that they are really serious offences for which the full weight of the policing and law needs to be reserved. Melbourne sex worker, Lexi. If you could see me, I'm rolling my eyes. It's actually laughable and I, I can't believe we're still having this conversation in 2021. It's one of the only industries where people think that they have a right to question you about why you do it and it it can only be one of two things in people's minds, something you need to be saved from or something that's incredibly empowering. There's no middle ground. At the end of the day, it's just a job. You know, it's as taxing as any job dealing with people. I've worked in hospitality industry for 10 plus years. That job was far more emotionally and physically draining than working as a sex worker. Um, I think sex work is one of the only almost completely female-run industries in that most sex workers are sole traders. Men are the, the target in this and we're the ones dictating the price. There's certainly some sex trade groups who would advantage themselves and their own businesses through a model like that of kind of cutting red tape, of not having so much government oversight. I do think we're also seeing that in, in Victoria and we need to question why Fiona Patton was handed the review that's currently going on, very much outside of normal processes when you think that the sex party was really openly set up as a lobby group for the Eros Foundation? For most sex workers who can legally work in Australia, decriminalisation will improve their circumstances. Now, for those that may be working illegally on a student visa, I don't think decriminalisation is going to provide greater benefit or greater barriers I believe that we probably do need to reconsider our visa system and we do need to consider that migrant workers do want to come and work in the sex industry in Australia and that that should be permitted. That wasn't within the scope of the review that we undertook because we were just looking at Victorian laws, not at federal immigration or visa laws. What's your response to concerns that you've perhaps prioritised sex industry operators having formally been an advocate for them on their behalf. Well, that's right. So I think it actually was that background uh, in representing the industry, in being part of the industry, uh, was why I was chosen to, to conduct the review. It was that knowledge 
I believe that I have um, worked fairly with everyone, brothel operators, escort agency operators, sex workers themselves, sex worker rights organisations, but also local government, the police, health services, a, a whole range of different groups were part of this review. Uh, it's definitely important to hear the voices of you know, the owners of brothels or the licence holders of brothels. But I think fundamentally it was crucial that the voice of sex workers was heard and reported in this review. And I'm certainly confident that I achieved that. Sex workers aren't stakeholders in the debate. Sex workers should be the primary voice. And that's not happening here. I would have thought that in the last three decades, sex workers' organisations would have been recognised and resourced in a way that enabled them to function equally with other organisations. They have no money, none. And I'm really shocked by that. I think the only way that this stigma will dissipate is through conversations, through giving sex workers a platform, not taking platforms away. There's so many good resources out there, but for example, on Instagram, these resources get shadow banned or they just get straight up removed from social media platforms. So by putting sex workers back into a dark corner, you know, we're taking away their voice and then through that comes misinformation and stigma then is perpetuated. I think that we live our lives mostly online and especially after the global pandemic and lockdowns, a lot of sex work has moved almost completely online. When workers are not allowed to advertise on other forms of social media, you're taking food out of people's mouths. The decriminalisation, yes, of course, that's a good thing. And I think it would have a positive impact. But I do think the much broader and should include censorship. We're back in Lonsdale Street in Melbourne CBD, the former site of the red light district known as Little Lon, with researchers Dr Barbara Minchinton and Sarah Hayes. And so what was the kind of groundswell that changed the public perception or urged the legislature to criminalise sex work? Through the 1880s, it happened all over the world that there was this upsurge of desire for respectability and pushing women into domestic roles. And that happened very clearly here in Melbourne when the Salvation Army came along. And the definition of a fallen woman became one that we needed to rescue her. So even though she might have said she didn't want rescuing, the Salvation Army were very keen. In 1907, the Victorian Parliament outlawed sex work. Their primary target was the Little Lawn brothels. It meant that rather than being able to work a business run by women, it generally meant that there was a man somewhere, either in a protection role or as a pimp role, because they couldn't be seen on the streets anymore. They couldn't stand in front of their houses as they used to do to bring business in. I think women could, in the 19th century, they could band together and protect themselves to a degree. And I think that there are different ways of doing that now among sex workers where they're trying to do similar things, where they can protect themselves against men who are known to be violent. So there are lots of parallels of how things worked in the 19th century and what lessons we might learn that by banning it in 1907, what did it do? It drove it underground, it didn't remove it. It changed the dynamics, changed the economics, but 
it didn't remove it. Carly Godden with that report. The Victorian government is expected to respond to the review sometime this year. Big thanks to producer Anita Barrow and to technical producer Richard Gervin. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more more. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.